I'm Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. Coming up, it's our Reimagining Africa series. We celebrate Africa Day, the founding of the Organization of African Unity, now known as the African Union, in May 1963. Here on The Spin, we're hearing from African women leading, thriving, and reimagining sectors right here in Ghana, across Africa, and in the diaspora. This week, it's all about philanthropy. Think Africa, think aid, think charity. Too many millions still think charity, dependency, and yes, aid. From Live Aid in London, celebrity saviors, white saviors, global charities like Red Cross and Oxfam, we depend and have depended on a visual of a helpless continent, arms outstretched on its knees, needing help or deliverance from a white savior. Scratch that. Forget that. Change that. Philanthropy is being reimagined in Africa as creative financing of sectors and progress by Africans. They are replacing this narrative and literally reimagining philanthropy. Not about aid, but about economics. We'll talk the NGO industrial complex and why it needs to crumble. And we'll talk the philanthropy needed to rise up instead. We're joined by a leading African woman revolutionizing the world of philanthropy in Africa, Anna Tu Ben Lawal. All of that coming up on The Spins Reimagining Africa. We are joined by a Ghanaian woman leading and making change as she reimagines an Africa beyond aid. Anatou Benlawal is CEO of Social Innovation Africa. She's driving a social enterprise and impact investing agenda across multiple African countries to achieve that Africa beyond aid. Her vision, development of national entrepreneurship ecosystems. Welcome to Reimagining Africa, Anatou. Hello, thank you very much. We're going to divide this conversation up. So be honest, when you think of Africa and philanthropy, you probably think, Help! I need somebody, Help. not just anybody, Help. you know I need someone. Help. Exactly. Help. Hopeless. Hungry. Arms outstretched. Children's big bellies and bigger eyes. The visual of the white saviour parachuting in to help the dark continent is pervasive. It's still powerful. Remember the 1980s when London held Live Aid? It was 1985. Ethiopia was in the grip of a devastating famine. And Bob Geldof was telling white people to give Ethiopians their money. Listen. You've got to get on the phone and take the money out of your pocket. Don't go to the pub tonight. Please stay in and give us the money. There are people dying now. So give me the money. That was 1985. Live Aid turned into a global phenomenon, raising millions of pounds and dollars in aid. But using this cycle of images of helplessness and hopelessness to trigger guilt and to get the West to help the continent is damaging, dangerous and cancerous. African economist and author Dambisa Moyo's book, Dead Aid, offers a stinging critique of this. Dambisa argues white celebrities have no business engaging Africa this way and Africa's leaders, some of them, 
are not helping either. Take a listen. No society uh, would appreciate uh, their whole policy and the future of their children to be dependent on um, on uh, celebrities that actually don't live in these contexts. Aid has become an industry. There are just way too many vested interests. And by and large, the criticisms that uh, my book has been receiving are coming from those quarters, people who actually have a vested interest to see the uh, continual cycle of, of Africa in despair so that they can justify their, their existence. Africa is a continent of 54 nations, more than a billion people, multiple ethnicities, languages, incredible diversity, richness, resource and power. But the visual, the narrative of philanthropy where starving children are paraded in front of cameras to trigger giving from whites lingers. Why? So Anatu, we had Live Aid in the 1980s in England, which featured this global artist and became this massive international phenomenon. We had uh, Comic Relief that was images of African babies with these big bellies and these bigger eyes with their hounds outstretched. That is still the image that so many have of this continent, of all of the 54 nations, because we know Africa becomes a country, when they think of charity. Talk to me about why these images persist and how do they impact this thing that we call philanthropy? I believe there is a need for that because usually people give emotionally. It's, it's a normal reaction. We have been sensitized to the fact that when we think about giving, it has to do with the poor. We don't think about structures that will enable sustainability. We think about starving children. And I do think that, to be honest, that there is a place for that, you know, especially in the area of disaster relief. You know, a tragedy happens, you need to get money out there fast, you need to get resources. That's the best place to provoke response. The challenge that I have is that we have not grown from that. And part of those narratives and the dialogue that has been, is not being done by Africans as well. Hence, you do not get, you only get one perspective. However, I think from the 1950s, since Live Aid, et cetera, et cetera, that we need to go beyond that. We need to reimagine philanthropy and begin to put together a structure that responds adequately or prevents, in the first place, these things from happening. What kinds of ways does the aid industry connect to the charity issue? And why is that problematic? Aid and charity have been seen as synonymous in the past. I think more recently, philanthropy has grown. And so there's more strategic component and a business component to it. But charity continues to be a part of aid. At least that's how it's been imagined in the West. I believe it's born as of a response to give. I think there's been a structure that has been built in the West about 200 years ago from starting with the churches, giving, etc., etc., where this structure has been built in terms of giving, you know, according to the Bible, according to religion, etc., etc. However, in this modern world, we need to go beyond that. And I believe that these images continue to persist because we're not leading the dialogue. A lot of irresponsibility from our politicians and leaders. And there's only so much that others can do, to be fair. So I think we have not taken ownership. And that has been the challenge. And as long as you don't take ownership, there's only so much that you can complain. We still have the problems. We, still, we have Mozambique. We have, up to now, Mozambique has been hit by cyclones for 25 years. We haven't put a structure in place to be able to manage that or to look at that and, you know, the issue of climate change, etc. So it's a bigger issue than we see. And if we're going to persist, we need to look beyond and begin to think about sustainable structures that will actually deliver on this, that are African-led. A few years ago, we we're talking about uh, looking at maybe a disaster relief program, which is led by CSR or corporates, you know, so maybe Coca-Cola provides a truck, etc., etc., that can respond adequately and fast enough. So these are the issues that we need, like national funds, you know, for disaster relief. And we've started having earthquake tremors. Who is looking at that to find out how we're going to manage all those things and these new things that are coming upon us? So when we don't take responsibility, there's only so much that we can complain about. We still have starvation. We still have all the challenges that we have. And we have not moved from beyond this image of the starving, begging African child. Who profits from that visual and that narrative? There's genuine charity. There's a lot of charity to that. It's around marketing making people feel look better. I think there is a genuine need by people to want to give. I do believe that genuine need is there. But I also think that it excuses a lot of our leadership from having to do things themselves. 
And so they hide behind aid. And that's why Damisi was saying that if aid was to disappear overnight, what would Africa look like? So who is it benefiting? Of course, the recipients are benefiting. They're getting some support, etc., etc. But for I don't think actually anybody is benefiting in the way that they should. But there are major corporations and conglomerations that are making themselves look good out of doing that. So a lot of it has moved from even just being aid, but actually attached to corporate marketing to make them look good and to have a sense of giving back. So it's almost as if charity becomes a way of branding Africa. Yeah. And there's certainly this notion, I think, with the lingering legacy of the untreated trauma from colonialism, one of the very powerful narratives that was certainly used to colonize different African nations was this notion of a people undone yeah. and unable. And because of those two things, requiring this kind of beneficence yeah. from outsiders in order to lead. So there is this reducing of an African people to children needing to be led, handheld to do ABCD. And Dambisa Moyo, her book, Dead Aid, kind of lamented this narrative of hopelessness and hunger, um, which creates this aid economy, actually. And it literally does that. It feeds economies, it gives them millions of dollars of pounds of AIDS, and it's not really serving the continent's future. But the thing is, we think of African communities as kind of nurturing and selfless. And there is a beauty and a power to that. But what is the challenge with that when it comes to thinking about aid and charity, this idea of a communal giving and a selflessness and that being attached to aid. And it's almost a communalness is the institutional reality of a people Mm -hmm. as opposed to what is happening within an environment based on all kinds of different structures that need structural relief. As you said, Africans have always been communal, but I think so has everyone at some point in time. But we evolved from being communal to become nations. I think we're still at that stage where, you know, when we discuss philanthropy, the first thing that comes out of people's mouth is, oh, Africans are communal, we help one another, remittances are a big part of what we do, etc., et which I believe. But as we have transitioned to nations, I think we need, again, to go beyond that. When we look at countries like the UK, there's UKA, there's USAID, etc., etc., which, again, begins to look at the social issues so that even nationally, civil society organizations or charities, etc., etc., have a pot of money that they can access. We don't have that. So we don't have philanthropy becoming a key part of supporting national budgets. But when you look at other countries, they've transcended to that. So you get corporates get tax relief, etc., etc. And so there's always this pot of money where you don't need to go outside of your country necessarily to be able to access finance to do the work that you do. So in the lack of that, as long as we continue to have that communal attitude, it's on a family basis, on a do if we want, if you know, but it doesn't actually drive national development. What we need now is money to be able to drive advocacy, especially accountability, transparency, all these issues, etc., etc. So what other countries have been able to do is to harness that power, incentivize high net worth individuals, incentivize the corporate sector, mobilize different people to be able to even give, even their local citizens, to be able to recognize their role in national development. The challenge in Africa and the fact that you talked about the handholding, etc., etc., that very much appears there. But one of the reasons why I said social innovation Africa was for us to be able to look within. There's only so many excuses that we can give. Colonialism has happened, and I do believe that we are still suffering the effects of that. But at some point, we need to rise up and be, take ownership. And looking at corruption, looking at what our leaders have done, 
no one has really come out, or very few on this continent have come up with an economic agenda. You know, it's always social, it's always social, you know. You talk to people, they want to start NGOs, they want to apply for aid. This idea of being able to take our own resources and generate domestic revenue, you know, domestic resources by mobilization, using any of our local resources, etc., etc., et or looking at different, different ways that locally we can mobilize resources, doesn't exist. So it's very difficult now for a civil society organization or anybody who's working with multi-million dollar budgets or pound budgets to be able to access funds locally. So then the recourse always becomes foreigners. And we, we need a lot of money to ensure development. So that's what has led to this aid economy. Now, of course, along the way, a lot of them have benefited. They've become large charities in 200 countries, 300 countries, operating mainly in Africa and raising money from the West. So it's a big, big industry. It doesn't help in the long run. We still continue to be these hapless children. And I'm not against, we always need money, you know, but I want us to be able to come to the table as equal partners, not as beggars. And that's the image that we keep getting out of Africa. Our leaders, as soon as they gain office, is to go to the, run to the IMF, run to the World Bank, go to the West and secure. And we actually applaud them. I remember Vice President securing a loan from the Chinese as soon as they came into office. And everybody thought it was a brilliant thing. While he auctioned off our bauxite reserves. Sometimes you need to do what you need to do, but that's nothing to be proud of. And so we need to begin to rethink and we need to stop blaming people because everybody's going to do what they do. Martin Luther King said that uh, freedom is never given willingly by the oppressor. You have to seize it. And I think this economic agenda is what is left. So we have all these wonderful plans, these wonderful policies, the EU writes them, ECOWAS, etc. But we're still broke. The African economics is linked to our independence, it's linked to our dignity as people, it's linked to the next generation, what you are living with them. It's linked to unemployment, the youth unemployment, and all the challenges that we have. So this is really about financing, it's really about economics. And so using philanthropy as the conversation starter to begin to look at a sustainable Africa is key in all of this because, like I said, it's one of the major ways which we can finance ourselves, have our dignity, be able to dictate our own programs. We alone know what we need. Outsiders do not know what we need. There's only so much they can do. And then they have to go according to their country's agenda. So it's not serving us in any way. So what I'm looking for also is leadership in this area. And the conversation around this, we have a lot of conversations around advocacy, around social development, etc., etc. But what is lacking on this continent is an agenda, a public dialogue that's going on in terms of the economics where are we going to get money to transform the continent? All these beautiful plans we write, all these national budgets that we put together that don't go anywhere. Where are going to be the resources? Even recently, yesterday, I think there was a conversation around the election of ECs. Again, these are the dist- district representatives yes. here in Ghana. Yes. Again, what's the point of electing people if they don't have the resources to work? So everything comes down to resources. Mm-hmm. And there's always, in our dialogue as Africans, there's never money for anything. You know, we've been independent. I take Ghana as an example. For over 60 years, mm-hmm. we still don't have the means and the resources, at least according to the dialogue that we have, to be able to do this, to do this. And so if money is the challenge, whether it's with government or civil society or us as individuals, why don't we tackle it? Why do we talk about everything else or have an agenda to drive everything except the issue of African economics and resource mobilization? And that's what I don't get. I want to also close by us thinking about the relationship in terms of African nations and Africa as a continent with the West as it relates to not just the way colonialism shaped the narrative of who Africans were as a people and who Europeans or white Americans are as a people, but the way that impacted our relationship with money. Because I think that notion of having a relationship with and to money is a very important part of colonialism's legacy and the idea that there's something distasteful or 
not quite undignified, but there's something wrong with a real focus and exchange of, okay, let's just talk about the money of this, the economics of this, and what that looks like for us as a people. But it's also there in relationship with Africa and the West. Talk a bit about that, what the problem is there and what the challenge is there. I believe that with the West, we still, even before colonialism, I think there's always been this image or this intention that the West, you know, white is better, European better, far more advanced, etc., etc., etc. What I do know is that nations who made it, you know, have gone through a renaissance, they've gone through different movements to be able to critically look at what is available, you know, thinkers have been encouraged, etc., etc. I think somewhere along the line we missed that. I'm not saying we didn't have thinkers, etc., etc., but in the economic sense, and then even after colonialism. So... When you look at even civil rights, et cetera, et cetera, there's always been this issue of the challenge of finances and the relationship to that. So recognizing that in itself is powerful, that if people are not interested in promoting that or teaching us, and actually they don't have to. So this is something that we need, you know, the first Wall Street was burned down in the USA, as we know, in 1915, I believe. And so this is something that we deliberately have to break out of, because until we do so, we are going to continue to be beggars and continue to borrow. I think right now the onus is on Africa because to, to be fair as well, there's a lot of investment that has been put in. There's issues like illicit financial flows that have happened on the continent, millions of dollars, you know, money laundering, etc. Stewardship of money, corruption, etc. etc. So I think for me it's time for us to take responsibility. We need, still need to deal with the issues of colonialism, but part of it is taking charge and rising up and saying that no more. And the challenge that we've had is that this has not been established in our education systems. So you go to school, you learn a lot of things in Africa, but one of them is not to come out and think entrepreneurially. Now, I know not everybody is an entrepreneur, can be an entrepreneur, but definitely in terms of the thinking of an entrepreneur, understanding you know, the issues around money, around economics, around you, that is lacking in our education system. And what you don't put in, you don't get out. So if you want a generation of young innovators, you want to generation of dynamic innovation thinkers driving an agenda, then we need to start looking at our young people. And we have to be purposeful about it. Entrepreneurship doesn't come out of nowhere. Singapore, Malaysia, those revolutions didn't come out. It was planned. So we need to be deliberate about it. So from beginning to end, I know some countries have started some initiatives, but it's not enough. It needs to be something that is driven by government and is purposeful, just the same way they drive health, etc., etc. We don't drive entrepreneurship. We just think, oh, let's put in a budget, you know, entrepreneurship, job creation. But it doesn't really work that way. So when you look at Africa, there's no country at the moment that has passed an entrepreneurship policy, a social enterprise policy, a policy on impact investing or innovation, etc., etc. So if there isn't an ecosystem that is being formed and the right people and the right building blocks being put in to be able to create this type of young people or generation or job creation, then what is going to happen? It's not going to happen. What you have is this ad hoc budget, you know, we're doing this, we're putting 10 million into that, etc., etc. But you have to be deliberate about it if you're going to build a nation of people or a group of people who think a certain way. And I think that's what is missing. There's a lot of laziness in that area, a lack of leadership. Even in philanthropy, we've not been up to now, we've not been able to harness our high net worth individuals to be able to give collectively or to drive an agenda around development on the continent. So I want to be able to separate the conversation from colonialism while still looking at it and saying that, look, whilst we deal with this, what are we doing? What are we starting ourselves? You know, the, a lot is happening in the world in terms of innovative financing you know a lot of people have moved on from aid so actually now the aid is no longer trickling in so we have to stand still and that shows us how far we've come because if really aid is over by now we should be able to take the initiative and say look do we really need this you know what are we going to do to replace it and that uh, enables us to actually self-mobilize but we're not doing that either and i think part of it is that there's a lack of knowledge a lack of awareness. People don't know where to start. And I think the same way our governments get up and go for loans, they should go and study or go and find out how we're going to industrialize, how we're going to get an entrepreneurship agenda rolled out, an innovation agenda rolled out, to deal with this youth unemployment that is causing our young people to migrate. I saw images yesterday of somebody in the Gulf beating a black man, 
brutally. We've seen the pits in Libya. We've seen all the pictures, etc., etc. What are our governments doing about that? What are they doing to create conditions at home that enable young people to stay and prosper? And so there's a prosperity agenda that should come for ourselves. The disappointment is that government after government, they come, they talk about all these things, how we're going you know, to mobilize, how we're going to be self-sustaining, etc., etc. And that's the last thing. As soon as they come into power, it's the same dynamic again. And I know things don't happen overnight. Sometimes you do need loans. Sometimes you need some time together. But there hasn't been any traction in that regard. Of course, you have countries like Rwanda and South Africa who have missed strides. But generally speaking, it's a colossal failure at the moment. It's a colossal failure at the moment. So one of the ways that we really think about how to sustain this role of advocacy and organizing when it comes to philanthropy and aid is really our civil society organizations. Talk about the importance of diversifying a sector so you don't necessarily have a model that solely has the CSOs, the civil society organizations on one hand, working with government and seeking donors. Talk about the challenge with that model and how that doesn't necessarily serve a prosperous self-financing African continent with the kind of wealth and resources that we have. What you have is that after generations of receiving handouts and being allowed to irresponsibly manage finances, what you have is a whole culture of dependency, which just cannot even begin to conceive what anything else looks like. So I remember growing up, I wanted to go work for the UN, for the World Bank, you know, most of us do. You know why? Because it's paid well. You get to travel. We work for civil society. You know, I know that's not the case with all civil society. There are CBOs. You know, civil society is very broad. But there has been that tendency to begin to see this whole sector as somewhere where you come. There's money available. We went through that phase where people were sitting in their bedrooms writing proposals and getting money. So what happens is that uh, you have this whole sector now, which again is an unplanned sector. It sort of has grown just on the goodwill of foreigners and it hasn't looked outside of itself. And that's the challenge that I have with civil society, even now. There's a lot of talks and conventions and discussions talking about the fact that now donors are giving only 1% of what they were giving 15 years ago. They told us it's been obvious countries have their own issues, especially since the global economic crash. But even still, I don't see a lot of traction from civil society. And uh, One of it, which is that I think people are still comfortable with what they have. There are some who want to change, etc., but don't know how to go about it, etc. So it's also not helping. You have this dynamic where people are aware that this is, but they're not doing anything to change it. Civil society has a very important role in terms of advocacy. We know what it does in terms of implementing programs, etc., etc. But the key is for the beneficiaries, not to enrich the people themselves. So just like government, there are a lot of models in civil society that are not helpful in terms of the traveling, the huge expenses, etc., etc. I'm going to write a book called Helping the Poor, where it's more expensive to pay people than the beneficiaries themselves. Wow. And it's, it's a, more it's, expensive it's, to pay people yeah, than the beneficiaries. The system of maintaining a civil society right. in Africa is far more expensive. The idea of maintaining a civil society organizational sector is more expensive than actually paying those you're trying to help directly. Absolutely. So sometimes wow. you have, you know, the, someone in the West raising money. Of course, they have to cover their fees. They have to take their cut. So then the money comes to an intermediary organization or a national office here. And then they take their cut as well. And then from there, it goes to the local beneficiaries. And then somebody else is paid to go and do the M&E, et cetera, et cetera. So What's that, the M&E? Yeah, the monetary evaluation. Right. Cetera, and all the post things. So what you then get is... Again, reinforcing at the community level this sense of helplessness. So what I'm advocating for is actually a fourth sector, which is looking at different social enterprises, civil society, etc., with a sustainable lens. You know, lean organizations that are able to earn their own money and run their own operations so that the money that's actually meant for beneficiaries get to them. So the focus is actually on the beneficiaries and creating models that are income generating at the local level, shared by all, locally owned, 
able to, you know. So what then happens with this thing is that when a donor decides that we're leaving, you know, we've done our five years, we've done our 10 years, this was part of our plan, then everybody's like, oh. So what again is happening is that then you don't have people being able to take over and say, okay, maybe whatever it is, Exos, you know, did this for 10 years. It was good. It helped us to start something. Now, we've now created a model that we can now take over. Then the cycle repeats itself. So all those people go and work somewhere else or they are without jobs, etc. So it needs looking at again. And so then there's also the competition in the area, you know, for resources. People are more worried about how they're able to pay their staff. So sometimes you have some staying afloat without necessarily being able to implement at the time. So for a whole year, a whole two years, they're not really able to do programs, but they sustain themselves with the hope that some money will come from somewhere. So there's a lot of things that we need to look at critically over there. And for me, if you're trying to teach communities how to be sustainable, the question you should ask, are you sustainable yourself? Are you sustainable yourself? So here's my final question, though, regarding the relationship between Africa and the West. There is no modern economy or nation that built itself. America became what it became in large part because of enslaved African labor that literally built entire structures and economies. The result of that is the superpower that we have today. Britain relied on the labor of peoples of color from different African nations. There was, of course, the enslavement in Britain, which we act like it didn't happen, but it really, really actually did. Ports like Liverpool and Bristol were incredible hubs of enslaved Africans coming through. And entire ecosystems were built with that labor. So one of the challenges that I have, I have no issue with the narrative of self-development, but I have an issue with it being put outside of the perspective of recognizing when nations like America or Britain say, what is Africa doing or why is this not happening at the speed at which it's happening? Part of my response is, to what extent do you get to challenge the status of a continent as part of an entire space whose enrichment was completely because of this very continent. And then if you look at somewhere like the relationship between Francophone Africa and France, economic colonialism is a living reality. And what might France's economic coffers look like without literally peeling off the wealth of all the different Francophone African nations that contribute to that economy long after what we think of colonialism, and I think of that politically. People got the vote. There was an element in which they had a stake in their own society. So talk a bit about that challenge. And the actual, on the one hand, yes, aid fails. But on the other hand, I wonder if part of the legacy of colonialism isn't about economic justice and requiring something that builds the continent as opposed to the model we have, which is the feel-good variety. So is part of it about changing the relationship between the two spaces so that actually you can begin to build the very kind of philanthropic ecosystem that you're driving for and saying is so necessary? I agree that economic colonialism is very much alive. I mean, neocolonialism. But again, I attribute it to the fact that when you look at England and you look at the United States, etc., etc., you cannot deny the role that Africa has played in global development, you know, in terms of ideas to actual labor. A lot of ideas were also stolen from Africa, resources, etc. DRC is a typical example. It still continues to be a typical example. So on that level, I do believe we have not had the luxury of years and years of investment and innovation, etc., because at some point our development was halted you know, 20 million people being taken over from the continent outside and and more. So definitely I agree with that. I think that now, though, I think that it's not going to happen because it benefits people. It's in people's interest. And again, to be honest with you, people are tired. Why should they? Yeah, bro. 
you know, that's a reality. Why yes. should they, you know, I mean, the ideal thing would be for nations who have been able to become economically viable to be able to come and hold our hand the same way they came and pillaged our resources. But that's not going to happen. That's the reality I'm working with. You know, I wish that would happen. I wish our governments go in and study other governments who have been able to enrich themselves and how they did. But that's not going to happen. So I am saying that in terms of what's happening, like typical example, France, you know, we need leadership to be able to do that. We need leadership to support that. Activists who are trying to do that are not supported by their governments. But again, do we need them? The you governments know? or the activists? No, the, the West. Right. I believe that we have enough resources that if African leaders came together, you know, even, tip for example, trading among ourselves. It's so expensive. It's easier for me. I have a cosmetics company. It's easier for me to transport what I'm doing, export it to the USA and sell it than to be able to send it to Nigeria. or to you know. So these are the, very, the typical examples of what we are doing. So if we have leadership and there's an agenda, again, like I said, right now there's the AU Youth Parliament meeting, etc. If there's a, an agenda for economic justice on this continent, that's what I'm failing to see. Economic think tanks, etc. Et who are looking at all these issues and saying, okay, Within 20 years, if we take this path and we do A, B, C, D, this is what we're going to get. In the time being, of course, we still need people. So we're going to revise the relationship. We're going to revise the relationship between us and the West and United States, etc. There are good models that they have been able to do, especially in the area of innovative financing. A lot of civil society there, there's sustainability, social entrepreneurship, etc., etc. So we can bring back those good things, not necessarily clone them, but learn from them, etc., etc. So we can look at that as a pathway, but we can't expect them to lead it. It's not going to happen. It ain't going to happen, folks. <laughs> that was part one of Reimagining Philanthropy, part of our Reimagining Africa series. Dear Africa, it's just me, your son. Pray this letter find you better hope you're doing fine i can't believe the 10 years have gone by since i last packed my bags got a cabin sent by only imagine the feeling watching your kids go must have been heartbreaking where did the years go but you'd be proud to know i never stopped repping you every track every show every last interview plus i hated how they obtained your image in the news all the stereotypical narratives describing you if they ever met you i bet you was undisputable the way you shine so black so beautiful from the depths of the sahara travel to kilimanjaro ancient map Mathematics, they forgot you're the land of the pharaohs Plus you birthed us all, nobody can deny Most of the men that said they loved you only robbed you blind Switch bank accounts, they hiding all your funds Instead of education, they patiently give the children guns So while I write you this letter, I need some clarity People think that Africa is synonymous to charity listening to Reimagining Africa on The Spin. It is our special series for Africa Day, the annual May celebration of the birth on May 25th, 1963, of what was then the Organization of African Unity and became 
the African Union. Now it's known as African Union Day or just Africa Day. Philanthropy in Africa, reimagining it, revolutionizing it, and reinvesting in us, our now and our tomorrow. The land is good, the land is fine. Gold we have, diamonds we mine. Yet we fight, we cover it all in blood. Tell me why we wallow in the mud. Africa. The land is good, the land is fine. Gold we have, diamonds we mine. Yet we fight, we cover it all in blood. Tell me why we wallow in the mud. Africa. Africa, 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 yeah. Mama Africa, we cry for peace. Africa. We are on air in London on ABN Radio UK, across the United States in Iowa, Arizona, North Carolina, Massachusetts, South Carolina, New Jersey, and Mississippi. We are online on SoundCloud and iTunes. Tell me why you fight Tell me why we fight Reimagining Africa 
African women on the mic, moving the needle, doing the work, taking the lead. We keep it global with the discussion, but we make it gangster with the music. This land is my Okay, so time for the second part of our discussion on philanthropy on our Reimagining Africa series. We still have live with me in studio in Accra, Ghana's capital, Anatou Ben-Lawal of Social Innovation Africa. So let's get a bit more personal now regarding how you're reimagining philanthropy and, and bringing this vision to life and working across multiple African nations to literally reimagine philanthropy. There seems to be a shifting in the narrative regarding philanthropy. Now we have something called the Africa Grant Makers Affinity Group, and that's led by Executive Director Niamani Mutima over in New York. And she says this about philanthropy and Africa. African communities are creative, vibrant communities, and we now live in a global community. So what happens in Kinshasa does affect what happens in Kansas, not only in terms of health issues, but in terms of trade issues. Funders should be concerned about Africa because Africa is a part of the global community, and we want to be good global citizens. Most funders who are funding in Africa don't have a presence in Africa. There's also the African Philanthropy Network, too, is doing its work to shift the needle on philanthropy. But let's explore what you are doing, how you're doing it, and why you think it will work and ignite this sector in kind of so far unknown ways. So first of all, talk about your vision of philanthropy in Africa and where it comes from. The philanthropy I imagine, and the reason why I started Social Innovation Africa, was to complement the work of all these great organizations that you have talked about. There is a role for traditional philanthropy. We need that to respond to disasters and issues, etc., emergency issues and children and some of the softer issues that it's hard to get grants for, like advocacy and child protection. But I see beyond that, I see a broader picture where we are able to come up with private sector models that takes the philanthropy that we have that brings, whether it's high net worth or bigger funds that operate on an investment model. I really don't want to hear the word grants again. I want to hear investments because this idea of freebies is also not helping us as a people. So what I want to see is high net worth individuals coming together, governments coming together to create pools of funds that are able to sustain national development using private sector models or merging the private sector. Some of that is social entrepreneurship, philanthropy, maybe having a government or a corporation seed fund, something for youth innovation, innovation fund, for instance, to which citizens can put money. Everything should be business driven in that regard so that you're actually creating a sustainable pool that's able to invest and maybe invest using the dividends. And so it grows. And I think that's what I'm imagining, not handouts. So even in our engagement with high net worth individuals on the continent, a lot of times it's usually the same rhetoric of we want you to give. And again, times have changed. You know, people have worked hard for their money. There's a lot of need on the continent. There isn't actually a structure in place. So when you look at other countries like the USA, et cetera, et cetera, and you look at the amount of money that's being given philanthropy towards policy creation, et cetera, it's because the structure has been changed. Recently, I believe Tata, it was, gave a $2 billion fund in India 
for education outcomes as a seed fund for education. So that's the kind of thing that I want to see. And then alongside will come government to say, okay, we'll put in this and then somebody else will put this in and we'll be able to reach maybe 10 million children in terms of education. These are not handouts. These are investment models. There's also venture philanthropy. There's impact investing. There are different ways of assessing funds right now where, for instance, with venture philanthropy, you can get an investment, but if you reach your target, you might not necessarily have to pay it back or pay some back. And revolving funds. So those are the private sector models that I'm able to, not the handouts again, because again, it just reinforces what we're about to say. Even if the West had the capacity to lead us, why should they? And this has been one of the challenges that I've had in my work, because Generally, getting people to seed fund philanthropy or the conversation around it to drive an agenda is very, very difficult. And I remember when the SDG Philanthropy Forum started, it was funded initially. The SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals. Yes, so they have a philanthropy platform in in, in Ghana, in Kenya, and a few other countries, I believe, Zambia, etc. And so they they were set up to drive philanthropy and begin the conversation. And I believe it was one of these major foundations. There was a Hilton or Rockefeller that funded it initially. The idea was to initially fund it so that it could then get members and then drive local members and then drive an agenda itself. There's still organizations in the West that still want to do foundations that still want to invest in Africa, but in a different way. So the dialogue has been that how can you get an African caucus or a network to drive this where they are funding it themselves? Because we can't expect the West again to come and fund our philanthropy after giving us aid. It defies logic. It defies the whole concept. And so this is not going to be a Western managed thing again. We have to find our own feet. So the challenge has been for people to recognize that although it looks like philanthropy, it's not actually handouts, you know? And so what we need is more research, more discussions, more narratives. The first thing people think of philanthropy is giving and handouts. That's been the case. Instead of looking at economic models that suit us as Africans, you know, Africans have a different way of thinking, our issues, where we are in our national development. So when you look at the sustainable development goals for every nation, it's driven by domestic resource mobilization. So without domestic resource mobilization or without philanthropy, how are we going to reach the 2063 target of the Africa that we want? And so these are things that I believe that uh, the AU, ECOWAS, because a lot of them are also receiving funding from the West still. The AU is not self-funded by Africans, as far as I know. So until that happens, we spend so much time chasing money from the West, so much time thinking about the next grant, so much time, that we don't really have time to really dig deep, look at our cultural nuances, look at what to work for each country. So my vision for Social Innovation Africa really was to create a think tank, stroke network that is Pan-African in nature, but open to all, which is just really looking at driving innovation and entrepreneurship across Africa. What is our entrepreneurial culture? What did we have before? What did we lose? You know, how do we operate in terms of microfinance? The goal is, first of all, to look at the research behind it, to look at working with African nations in terms of creating the needed policies. That would work for different countries. So you look at uh, countries like Chad, etc., etc. How are we going to create jobs? What is needed at this level to be able to start something with young people? So that's the, the second thing that Social Innovation Africa Then we also partnered with uh, the SDG platform to start the Philanthropy and Impact Investment Network with Social Enterprise Ghana and Reach for Change. And the reason for that is because if you're looking at creating entrepreneurship and looking at the issues around entrepreneurship, but you don't have a pipeline of possible funders or philanthropy or somewhere where the money is coming from, then you have frustrated entrepreneurs, which is what's happening in Africa. So we talk about driving an entrepreneurship agenda, etc. But there's really no fund set aside where you know that if you wake up today as an entrepreneur, this is where you can get advice, this is where you can get seed funding, etc., etc. So it's to look really at both ends of the spectrums and bring them together. So dealing with the philanthropy networks and want to establish one in each country, and then looking at also the entrepreneurship aspect so that the two of them get to meet. And then when I talk about the philanthropy, I'm also looking at angel investments. I'm looking at impact investors collectively on how we are going to bring in the financing. The model you're talking about, does it replace policy and government work? Does it walk side by side with it? Does it walk in step with it? How do you envision that relationship 
between philanthropy and policy, the work of government? Because there could be an argument that says, are you looking to relegate the work that governments should do to the private sector? Or is it about recognising that what is the model that serves the needs of each African country within this continent so that a people are best served for their prosperity or progress? It complements the work of government. Again, it's all about resources and having the resources for it to be able to carry out its mandate. There's only so much the government can do. Even if it has the best intentions, it has the best people. Government can never create all the money and the funds that is needed to be able to implement. And that is what it always comes to. When we ask why we're underdeveloped, it, we're always told that there's no resources. So again, it's about getting innovative and looking at the role that philanthropy and contributions, and when I say philanthropy, not just from corporations, from the private sector, et cetera, et cetera. It's about creating this dynamic sector, which has policies that are, enable people to give in a way that is uh, innovative, in a way that suits their own context, et cetera. So whether it's from civil society, like I said, angel investors, impact investors, different kinds of investors, you know, those who want to invest in education, you know, and then strategic philanthropy from private sector as well that in a way also helps their companies helps them win helps them brand you have to give to get and also i think overall what i'm looking for is a pan-african agenda or spirit that catches us and says look we've come so far we've done so well you know how do we now break this last barrier which is the economic barrier and how do we bring our brothers and sisters in the diaspora and unite in order to be able to drive this economic agenda for our own development and create the africa that we want that benefits us and also benefits those in the diaspora and enables us to come to the table even with europe on an equal basis not as beggars you know so that if we are even looking for investors we're able to do investment not from a point of desperation but actually from the realities that you know so i have nothing wrong with trading with the West, I'm just saying that it needs to be done in a way that is complementary and is proper. One of the things that this series, this conversation sits within a series about reimagining a continent in celebration of Africa Day, which was about the founding of the Organization of African Unity, which became the African Union that was back in May 25th, 1963. Talk about the union around a philanthropic approach and path that actually makes the founding vision of those organizations real, but as it applies to the economics of philanthropy, as opposed to the traditional model we've had. So talk about how you're creating, it's really a 21st century visionary approach to what it means to create an African union within the world of philanthropy. When you look at the European Union, it has various instruments and, you know, different funds for different purposes some of which are philanthropic, you know, it's country donations, etc. So I vision almost the same thing. One of the tendencies that we have is that we have a tendency to create things without thinking about where the resources are going to come from. So what we become renowned as for doing, even our governments, is to write beautiful policies, to have the, the ideas, the creativity. We are creative people. But we don't look at and sit down and make a decision that this is where we're going to get the finances from. And it's a worrying trend that I find, you know. And so what eventually happens is that it leads to disappointment with the populace. Then they say they'll do this, etc., etc. So my thing is that if money or financing, or resources is the key thing. Why don't we stop everything for the next few years and focus on doing that? So the African Union, in order to be able to unite people, needs finances, it needs resources to be able to do its work. It's not going to be able to do its work as long as it's mainly funded by the West, effectively. So we need to look at this issue of regional and domestic resource mobilization. We need to look at the spirit behind it. And we look at an agenda that drives that. And we cannot do that without our brothers and sisters in the diaspora. We need each other to be able to do this economic agenda. So it's something that needs to be foremost in our minds. Instead of writing all these programs, our intention was not to create another aid model. But even getting people to even invest or their resource or their time or their commitment to even contributing towards a philanthropic agenda or discussions has been very, very, very difficult. Everybody recognizes it. I feel like civil society recognizes that it is 
is needed. We all know that we need an Africa without aid. Even if it is aid or we are going to get resources, it needs to be transformed into something else. Like you said, we don't want the hapless child begging, etc. It's an image accompanying. But nobody is willing to put in the money for the advocacy and the discussions and the dialogue and the campaign that needs to go around all this to make a reality. And that's what I find fascinating. So I believe that when organizations like the African Unity, ECOWAS, the banks, like the regional banks, uh, the national government begin to prioritize this and begin to show some leadership on it and begin to look at this sector in terms of passing policies, etc. But it's just simply not a priority. And again, I wonder, is it because we are so used to it that we can't imagine something else or... I mean, what it is, it's something I'm still trying to grapple and come to terms with. Here in Ghana, the current president talks about a Ghana beyond aid. In terms of social innovation in Africa, you're thinking about an Africa beyond aid. Africa Day, again, about the African Union and what it means. Of course, for us, the African Union was about a politics, essentially. And the thing about the EU, the European Union, it's really about economics. And we are in this moment where you're envisioning a philanthropy that combines the two and brings in the diaspora. 2019, of course, is the year of return. It is the anniversary of when Africans became enslaved and would end up on the North American shores to eventually become African-Americans. This notion of a visionary social change a minds and hearts shift in recognizing that philanthropy is about economics and not about charity, different than disaster relief, which has a short-term function. As we close, talk about that, this vision of Africa beyond aid when it comes to philanthropy and what makes you excited about the power and possibility of the way in which your reimagining philanthropy across Africa. When I talk about reimagining Africa and the passion behind this, it's because I know Africa can do it. I believe in Africa. I've seen the resources. I've been to almost half of the countries on the continent, and I believe that it is possible. And that's what the frustration sometimes comes from, that if we put in the work, we are the richest continent or one of the richest continents. We have all the resources. This is where they are taking from. If we just spend a little bit more time having a plan and not again, after all the work that we've done, allowing countries like China to come back in and form a new colonial structure. That defeats the purpose. The excitement behind this is that I believe that this is the final barrier. I believe that we've come a long way. I believe that there have been a lot of challenges in the past. We came out of colonialism, like any countries that come out. But right now, I think that we've reached that age of maturity. People recognize it for what it is. We have some governments that are very competent. Talking about Ghana Beyond Aid, we have a president who is very passionate. and We must rally behind that agenda. It's not an easy one. This is an agenda that we must support. And I believe that if each country or each regional institution, again, prioritizes this for the next few years and says, look, how are we going to do this? One of the things that's going to happen is that we're going to be able to make our own decisions, which is what we've always wanted. That's why we gained independence, to be able to design the programs that we want and implement it the way we want. And even in terms of the structure of delivering aid, why shouldn't that money come to us? Why should it go to somebody else? Why don't you create that and create jobs through that for others? Then I wouldn't be complaining so much. So for me, it's having a continent that wakes up and is able to decide what it wants, able to implement a national program that benefits its citizens without having to wait on the IMF and the World Bank to decide what they'll give them and not, you know, and loans at ridiculous rates. So for me, it's, it's, it's taking back that power that was taken away from us. And for me, that will be the final most wonderful thing. And again, it's about creating a future for young people. Jobs, we are migrating, forced migration. And I read an article a few years old about two boats full of you know, Africans capsizing the Canaries and drowning. And I, I just wept. Migrating is not a problem. But when you are forced to do it, when people think that there's nothing better here, 
than that. So for me, it's a continent that is self-sufficient, a continent that is able to create jobs and livelihoods for its citizens, a continent that is able to offer the diaspora various things to come back to. We talk about diaspora engagement, etc. But what have we put together to say that, okay, when you come back, this is what you can do. There's this investment. You know, Ethiopia has just done a bond for their diaspora where you can invest and then that goes into your community or village and becomes some sort of pension fund. So these are some innovative things that people can give into. And then we have a continent that is self-managing. Even if we happen to partner with the West or anything, it's done on a basis of equality, not on a basis of handouts, so in a way that suits us best. So for me, a self-sustaining Africa that is able to grow its own food, create its own jobs, pay its own people well, and keep us here in the continent developing it is the key thing. Ah, the beauty of this reimagining Africa. In the streets of a crowd where we live life slow There was a little boy that they called Bazaar Had dreams of becoming the ambassador So he steadied all the tapes and he steadied all the breaks Dropped stereotype, let the people get a taste Some straight adored it, others just ignored it Same people that's claiming hip-hop was boring uh, They wasn't ready for the sound I'm Chick Rivera getting rid of these clowns Took them all around the world international Sounds so militant, but it's rationale So be boys get your back off the wall And swing like Floyd Mayweather at the garden Next chain to watch every I flex challenge is ready And yes, my ghetto people want to get in Number eight, number 
That's your hour, reimagining philanthropy on our Africa Day celebration series. Thank you to Anatou Ben Lawal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The spin is brought to you by our global team, our sound editor, David McKeeva, aka McKeeva Magic, and Loretta Rucker of the AAPRC. This spin, your hour of talk, where smart is sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armo. Those that don't copy, just copy properly. Everybody send policy, universal equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically, future freedom, equality. Invest your money properly, people owe me your policy. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen, commodity, souls controlling, robbery, cold, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mine on black, just follow me. Honestly, 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 all these jokers economy. Puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's food, Jesus, honor me. See you looking, but you better take, take it easy. easy. You know, Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. You're good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend he DT. And that dog sniffing the bag ain't lassie. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, getting the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself 
become a ghost and write for myself Cause oh my I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity MC Huff no for the thugs, gypsies and hippies Yeah, the ghetto maestro with a nat turn of flow Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show I see you looking but you better than it get it Tell your goose that they tell it to you Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy Take it easy, you better take it easy Too much ex-mommy, take it easy Good with the sex, you'll be like, take it easy this program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.